Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and I thank you for joining me. We've got much to talk about today. Last summer, the California State Board of Education adopted a new kindergarten through 12th grade math program. It's built on themes of, quote, equity. And this is changing how math is taught. Uh, What we have is a politicized uh, math curriculum now. Dr. Williamson Evers takes a look at it with me from the Independent Institute, also in this hour. We talk with Peggy Stanton and looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's this Sunday's Gospel reading. It's the story of the Magi. It's the celebration of Epiphany. And it is... One of the major themes, it introduces one of the major themes in Matthew's Gospel, which is that the Jewish Messiah is going to be recognized by those outside the Jewish community. Remember, the Magi are basically pagan seers, uh, astrologers, uh, possessors of mystical knowledge, and they kneel before Jesus, they present their gifts, and we'll learn more. Uh, with Peggy coming up a little bit later this hour. So the second hour, though, we take a look at abortion in America, but it's history. When we think of abortion in America, we usually think of Roe v. Wade. That's where the conversation begins. She takes the conversation back to 1652. This is, again, a magnificent sweep and a street-level history of abortion in America from 1652 to 2022. Uh, Again, it's a a fascinating story, especially in the 19th century, when the American Medical Association, it was a very young uh, professional organization at that time, but how they uh, had a campaign to stigmatize uh, abortionists, and uh, abortion becomes a matter of criminal law. But uh, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program, so stay with me. Uh, we're going to, again, take a look at California's math curriculum. Has it gone woke? We'll ask the question, where's the newborn king of the Jews? And then we look at abortion in America. But first, today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Thursday, January 4th, it's the Feast of St. Elizabeth and Seton. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Officials say there are multiple gunshot victims at a high school in Iowa. We're still unclear exactly how many are injured uh, or what the extent of those are, but we're working on that right now. Dallas County Sheriff Adam Infante says it happened during the first day back for students at Perry High School, which is around 40 miles northwest of Des Moines. The suspect is dead. Multiple law enforcement agencies responded to the school after an active shooter report came in before 8 a.m. local time. The Defense Department is confirming an American airstrike killed an Iranian-backed militia leader in Baghdad. The strike also killed another Han member. The strike was taken in self-defense. 
that no civilians were harmed, and that no infrastructure or facilities were struck. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder telling reporters the militia leader was actively involved in the planning and carrying out attacks on U.S. forces in the region. The Vatican doctrinal office has issued a clarification to fiducia supplicants. Cardinal Victor Fernandez, prefect of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith, published a five-page press release today that underlines that pastoral blessings of couples in irregular situations should not be considered, quote, an endorsement of the life led by those who request them. He also provides a concrete example of what blessings might look like in practice, emphasizing they should be spontaneous and only last about 15 seconds. And the largest prisoner exchange between Russia and Ukraine since the start of the war is complete. Ukraine releasing 248 Russian servicemen while Russia freed 230 military personnel and civilians. The exchange comes as Russia is ramping up attacks on Ukraine. From your AviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. On July 12th, the California State Board of Education adopted a new K-12 math program that's built on themes of equity. Now, the question people have about this is, what, what does that mean? Usually when you talk about equity, you're talking about something that might be dealt with in courses on sociology or law or maybe even humanities, but you don't think of it in terms of the math. My guest, Dr. Williamson Evers, has been looking at this uh, question, and a lot of people wondering if California's math curriculum has gone woke. Well, he is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on Educational Excellence at the Independent Institute, where he also serves as Assistant Editor for their journal, The Independent Review. He serves as a U.S. Assistant, he has served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Education for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development from 2007 to 2009. He's been Senior Advisor to U.S. Secretary of Education Margaret Spellings during 2007 and a former Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, back uh, during the uh, Iraq War, he served from July to December of 2003 as Senior Advisor for Education to Administrator L. Paul Bremer of the Coalition Provisional Authority, who's been a guest on this program, by the way. Well, Dr. Evers, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Let's let's just set this up. For, for a lot of people, when they start hearing a math curriculum being accused of wokeness, uh, they say something's wrong here. Uh, how can that be? So set this up for me. Well... We've, you know, we have this shibboleth that's going around, equity. It really means equality of results. Uh, the people that are using it don't spell that out all the time. But uh, they're not necessarily looking at all of us having equal rights under law or something like that. Yeah. Okay. They're saying, you know, we want everyone the same, every group to be the same. Mm-hmm. So language group racial group, ethnic group, whatever. Okay. So uh, that's the source of all this in terms of their rhetoric. Uh, so we see they see a problem with certain groups in the results they're getting 
from their math education, and they want to re-engineer the curriculum to remedy that deficit. Well, that's what they say. Yeah. Uh, the, The truth is we had in California a period of tough love under some previous governors, Pete Wilson and Gray Davis, one a Republican, one a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, internationally bench standards. In other words, we were trying to get kids, if possible, if they were prepared for it, to take Algebra one in eighth grade. And we did well. We had two-thirds of the kids doing that. And we had six times uh, improvement in proficiency among uh, black children and uh, five times improvement among uh, Latino children, and we had two times improvement among low-income children. So, uh, of course, they that was <laughs> that wasn't good enough. So they decided to get rid of Algebra One in ninth grade, and also since they've done that, scores for blacks and Latinos have gone down. Now, did you say eighth grade or ninth grade? It, it was uh, the previous plan was to have them in eighth grade yeah, taking okay. algebra one, and now they have algebra one in ninth grade. Gotcha. And this new curriculum locks that in. Okay. So they've been drifting that way since to about 2010, 2012. In other words, they kind of started to put it in then and then they did more in 2012 and now they're locking it in they have they have an asterisk somewhere that says maybe you're ready in eighth grade but the charts the pathways the entire tendency of the curriculum is algebra one in ninth grade can you ever get the calculus in high school well you, you could if you if you doubled up let's say one year your junior year you took two math courses that year, which is kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Or you took heavily loaded summer schools or something like that. Uh, it's it's not designed for that. And, of course, if you're trying to go to a selective college or you're thinking of pursuing a science, technology, engineering, mathematics uh, course, course load in mm-hmm. college or a career after college, you really need to have calculus in high school, in, in the 12th grade. Yeah. And this uh, algebra 1 and ninth grade doesn't really allow for that, unless okay. we do these onerous workarounds like doubling up. Right, right. Okay. So I guess the question is, if they were getting – if why why weren't they satisfied with the earlier results? I thought, I thought that there had been vast improvement. Uh, yes, there, there had been vast improvement, but it wasn't perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, they they there's there's another reason. So a lot of math had been taught, you might say, straightforwardly by explicit direct instruction mm-hmm. by lectures in class by the kids having to memorize the math facts, so addition facts, subtraction facts, times tables, things like that. They had to memorize or learn to mastery, if you wish, uh, standard algorithms, standard problem-solving techniques okay. like long division, like to divide fractions, invert and multiply. So they didn't like that. They thought it wasn't creative enough. It wasn't enough student self-discovery. So this is a slight caricature, but their idea is that the students should discover on their own what it took mankind 2,000 years to discover. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, um, are the people responsible for this curriculum themselves uh, expert in math education? Well, yes, they are expert in math education, but not in math. Yeah. Gotcha. So here's the interesting thing. So most of the writers of this uh, curriculum are professors of education. Really? In okay. schools of education. So in the Cal State University system or in uh, University of California or in private universities. But 1,200 professors of math, of engineering, of the various sciences like geology, biology, chemistry, physics, and so forth, yeah. uh, to get together with uh, business professionals and venture capitalists who are in the high technology field, signed a letter saying that this was an atrocity, it was an insult, it shouldn't. It should not be foisted upon the children or foisted on the teachers. So the, the those uh, who are it, those who are actually right. working in the field yeah. where there's yeah. heavy math work, they right. think this curriculum. Uh, is, this is crazy. So so what yes. one one, uh, one professor at UC Irvine uh, said that this curriculum is so bad that it makes California the laughing stock of the world. Really. I mean, I saw some phrases here. The cur curriculum recommends that teachers employ trauma-informed pedagogy in the classroom. Right. Trauma-informed pedagogy. Now, right. I, I, I can only imagine that it's supposed to mean that the teacher is sufficiently sensitive to various types of trauma, psychological or social traumas, in the student's life. It doesn't mean that kid got bitten by a dog, so beware of kid, <laughs> right. you know, don't, don't. problems that have dogs counted <laughs> right. in them. It means that the kids are living in a racist, exploitative, sexist, capitalist society, violent society, and that they are traumatized, and that the proper therapy for this traumatization is for the kids to work on projects and problems that in, have politics in them that are involved in overthrowing, overturning, radically transforming uh, the existing society. Well, then, th then that becomes, of course, in political activism, doesn't it? Or you yeah. know, or, or social yeah. critique. Or it's not. Right. A, it's no longer a math class. So, right. I mean, if you want to argue about minimum wage laws, uh, there's places which the they do. Which yeah. they do. That's a, a great example. They yeah. have that. They have that in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I take the standard view of economic science, which is that if you set a price, you're going to sure, and it messes things up, and that wages are in fact determined by marginal value productivity, and mm -hmm. if the government starts setting prices, you'll yep. have compulsory unemployment, right. particularly of Latino and black yeah. teenagers. Yeah. But whatever, it shouldn't be in math class. No. Neither should you have three oranges, I have two. Is that fair? <laughs> it's not a math problem. That's I mean, right. And not, not only does it abstract from how it occurred historically that we each got these you know, did we get them honestly? What they're not—that's not—they're not, that's not math. Yeah, yeah. right. That's, 
this, I mean, this on the face of it, this sounds really bizarre, and and again, missing the point uh, that to succeed, students have to, in certain areas of, of uh, professional life, students have to learn skills in math. Uh, you're going into engineering, you have to do it. Uh, if you're going right. to go into academic work in the field of physics or mathematics, you have to. Or even history. Or history, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. So so the, the thing that's the, uh, sort of most amazing about this is we have about 60 years of serious study of how to effectively teach math. Yeah. And it's, it's through explicit uh, direct instruction. It's not by this student self-discovery, this inquiry, Based thing that they mandate. They also have the organization of the curriculum, not not in the ordinary progression, arithmetic, et cetera, et cetera. But they want to have some integrated thing that is grouped around big ideas like relationships instead mm-hmm. of the normal step by step. The focus will. I'll tell you, the students are going to pick up on that right away, and they'll do the easy work of talking about relationships and uh, social views rather than do the hard work of learning math. That's just the way students... Well, as it was once said in a a proverbial story, there's no real royal road to geometry. It's hard work, (laughs) step-by-step. You have to learn it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What do you think the future holds for this? We've got about 30 seconds. I think there will be a rebellion on the part of parents and teachers, as there was in the 1990s. Okay. And probably this curriculum, if, if those parents and teachers rebel, uh, won't last the eight years that normally these do in California. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, let me thank you so much, uh, Dr. Evers. Wonderful talking with you. We'll talk again. Thank you so much. I'm Al Crest. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. I often have people ask me, aren't you scared when you talk about the issues such as abortion or uh, all the different ideologies, especially the gender ideology? I say, I'm scared of what I don't say if I'm not using this platform that God gave me wisely and well. If I'm not sharing information with people, if I'm not sharing the truth of the Catholic faith, I'm going to be held accountable, as is any one of us who has a platform. And we all have a platform. The sizes and the extent are different. But every single person, especially if you have a computer and if you have a Facebook page or a Twitter account, you have a platform. And so we're all responsible to evangelize. And we may be fearful, but we move through that fear with trust that God is with us. He tells us he will give us the words. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Not all sin is equal. Sins can, says the Catholic Catechism, be distinguished in gravity according to their objects, to the virtues they oppose or the commandments they violate. The root of sin lies within man's heart, Jesus declared, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These, said the Lord, are what defile a man. On the other hand, charity, the source of all good works, also resides in the heart. The gravest of sin, mortal sin, destroys charity in man's heart by a serious violation of God's law. Mortal sin requires three conditions, grave matter, full knowledge of that gravity, and complete consent of the will. 
Because mortal sin turns man away from God by preferring an inferior good to God, it should be brought to confession. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. CMF Curo is a Catholic health care ministry providing families nationwide with a better solution centered around whole health, spirit, mind, and body. Our members share their medical burdens within a faith-filled community. At CMF Curo, our members have access to a spiritual director, concierge services, and other health and spiritual resources. Find out if CMF Curo is a better solution for your family. Visit MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and we are coming upon the Feast of Epiphany. It is the, again, the feast in the liturgical calendar, which uh, recognizes the coming of the wise men, the Magi, who recognize in the baby Jesus, the Davidic king. And uh, my guest during this segment will be Peggy Stanton. Peggy joins us uh, weekly to discuss the upcoming gospel readings for Mass, and this, of course, is Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Peggy is the author of From the White House to the White Cross. She's a dame of the Order of Malta, was ABC News' first female Washington correspondent, and has hosted many programs with us here at Ave Maria Radio, including the Malta Minute with the Catechism, which uh, was ended up becoming a book called The Order of Malta, Minutes with the Catechism, that's been recently published and distributed. Peggy, good to have you here. It's been a while since we've talked. Uh, yes, Al. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's. Yeah, it was fantastic. We had all of our family, all of our grandkids together oh. for about seven days, and oh, wow. it was it was just one one wonderful moment after another. So, oh. By the way, I saw the movie. Took the older kids to see the movie, Boys in the Boat. Uh, oh, I heard about it. Yeah. Is that, did you like it yeah, as much I, as I thought, I thought it was good. I thought it was very good. 
Probably not yeah. a great movie, but a very mm-hmm. good movie, a very edifying movie, too. So Probably very appropriate for the Christmas season. Hmm? Yeah, I thought so. It had that inspirational feel mm-hmm. of the, under, you know, the underdog, uh, you know, uh, making good. Right. <laughs> so I won't say more than that. All right. I'll, I'll go see it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, let's, uh, I guess what we do is let's get to the text for yeah. this Sunday. Right. It's uh, the story of the, the wise men. And I'll just read it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising, and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written through the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, since from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the time of the star's appearance. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may go and do him homage. After their audience with the king, they set out, and behold, the star that they had seen at its rising preceded them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. They were overjoyed at seeing the star, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Then they opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their country by another way. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, this Sunday's Gospel reading. This is a great story, well-known. It's Mm -hmm. been told over and over again, but it's always richer than people realize. So let's mm-hmm. <laughs> let's yeah. dig into it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I must say it's uh, probably my favorite <laughs> because uh, when when Epiphany was always January sixth, it was my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> but it's hard to compete with Jesus. I'll tell you. That's true. Because it. <laughs> Uh, everyone thinks they've already given presents, and so they kind of, you're kind of this forgotten soul. But yeah, <laughs> but nevertheless, I uh, I think uh, it may show why or reveal to me why I have always had such love of uh, stars, and particularly I've always looked for the uh, for the star and. And you wouldn't have you ever noticed that there's a very bright star in the sky uh, always at Christmas time? It starts to, and it must be Venus. It starts to appear, I think, in mid-November. I could be totally wrong on that, but it goes into December, and I always look at it and say, "That's hmm. the star of Bethlehem." Interesting. Yeah, hmm. I've I've heard such things. I don't uh, I don't think I've ever really spent any time studying it though. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what to to we'll start with the catechism and uh, paragraph four hundred and thirty 
says that Jesus in Hebrew, we have to remember that, the, of course, the uh, epiphany means the manifestation. So throughout these paragraphs, you'll notice they're not t talking about just the Magi. They're talking about um, Jesus' identity and his manifestation. Right. Because that's, that's, what the, that's what the Magi recognize. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Jesus in Hebrew, it says, means God saves. At the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel gave him the name Jesus as his proper name, which expresses both his identity and his mission. And since God alone can forgive sins, it is God who in Jesus is eternal Son made man who will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, God recapitulates all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. That's hmm. quite uh, an interesting statement. It is, it? and it's probably taken from St. Irenaeus. Yeah. Uh, he had his, he's one of the first systematic theologians in the, in the Catholic tradition. And he mm -hmm. had this, um, this idea that in Jesus, the human story is recapitulated. Mm -hmm. And uh, from Adam to Jesus, Jesus being the last Adam, mm -hmm. and also being, again, a son of Israel, so... And also, uh, son of David, the king. So all of Israel's history is kind of relived out in the life of Jesus. Yeah, and people Al might wonder why um, why is Jesus, besides being called son of God, is called son of David? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. I mean, yes, his ancestry uh, through his foster father and it turns out i believe that through mary too it leads back to king david now the this is the promise the davidic promise uh that uh there'd be a son of david on the throne forever yeah that's what? fulfilled in jesus and right. so it's it's part of the fulfilling of the davidic covenant and if you notice, um, Herod here is especially concerned because yeah. he's, uh, he's he has good reason. He's not a Davidic king. He's yeah. not, that's right. And he knows <laughs> it, and the people know it, because he yeah. was not born king right. of the Jews. In fact, uh, his family was uh, not Jewish, uh, and he got appointed to rule by, uh, the Romans, by Roman yeah. authority, yeah, to yeah. rule over the Jews. And so the Magi showing up, following a star of supernatural origin, mm -hmm. and seeking the newborn king of the Jews, had to make him, you know, quite alarmed. Uh, very, very nervous. Yeah, he, he's ethnically non-Jewish. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in his later years, Herod began to get especially paranoid and, and, and violent. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, he's, he's greatly troubled uh, and, and greatly paranoid, too. So it's all all worked in there together, uh, he, and like I said, he had good reason uh, to be concerned. <laughs> right. Well, paragraph four eighty six says the father's only son, conceived as man, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is Christ. That is to say, anointed by the Holy Spirit from the beginning of his human existence, through the manifestation of this fact, takes place though the manifestation of this fact 
takes place only progressively to yeah. the shepherds first, then to the Magi, then to John the Baptist, and then to his disciples. Thus the whole life of Jesus Christ will make manifest how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It's, it sounds like he's almost talking about two different people in this statement, you know, right? Where it says, thus the whole life of Jesus Christ will make manifest how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit yeah. and with power. But God, he was God. He was God in human flesh. Yeah. <clears throat> but anointed specially uh, with the Holy Spirit uh, and with power uh, in order to overturn the schemes of Satan, the devil. And this is why after his baptism, he's led into the wilderness uh, to be tempted yeah. by Satan. Uh, that becomes the beginning of his public ministry, uh, is to overturn the designs of the evil one. Would you take this message that thus the whole life of Jesus Christ will make manifest how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power? In other words, Jesus of Nazareth is the human nature and that must be anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Yes, as he, 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 we have to remember uh, he's a divine person who takes on human right. nature. Yeah. Uh, so as a human... Uh, he needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, and in this case, to be anointed yeah. by the Holy Spirit, and that in order for him to claim the Davidic kingship, uh, right. which was a matter of a special anointing, a you might call it a covenantal uh, anointing. Right. Well, it, it, we. I have to ask you and, and uh, the listeners to... Um, bear with it because this is very deep here where you say that the epiphany is the manifestation of Jesus as Messiah of Israel son of God and Savior of the world that's right the great feast of epiphany celebrates the adoration of Jesus by the wise men magi from the east together with his baptism in the Jordan and the wedding feast at Cana in Galilee those are the those are the number of great uh, manifestations mm -hmm. of Jesus as uh, Messiah. Uh, in the Magi, representative who were representatives of the neighboring pagan religions, mm -hmm. the gospel sees the first fruits of the nations who welcome the good news of salvation through the incarnation. The Magi's coming to Jerusalem in order to pay homage to the King of the Jews shows that they seek in Israel in the messianic light of the star of David, the one who will be king of the nations. Hold it there, Peggy. We'll take a break, come back and pick it up okay. uh, from this idea that in the epiphany, we see, you might say, the messianic light of the star of David. The Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything? even things you don't believe in, there are options. 
you can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. By asking for spiritual communion, we are acknowledging that the Holy Mass is the perfect, best way to worship God. The priest intercedes perfectly for us with God the Father because he acts in persona Christi. This is the time to see that through the priest's representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary, we are never separated from our Lord. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. If you've ever bought a plant at a garden center, you know most flowers and vegetables require at least six hours a day of direct sun. Sure, you can plant them in a shady spot without killing them, but it's not like they're going to thrive if you do. Well, researchers say that to really thrive, most families need 10 to 15 hours of working, playing, talking, and praying together every week. That's why family time is the foundation of the liturgy of domestic church life. If your family isn't getting enough time to connect, then it might be time to rearrange your schedule. You don't need to cancel everything that you're doing, but start scheduling regular appointments for family meals, prayer, and recreation a few months out, gradually building up to a healthier lifestyle. To learn more about living the Liturgy of Domestic Church Life, check out our books Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. I repeat, I'm sure ad nauseum to the guys who are here, a line from Pope Benedict Emeritus now, who used to say over and over again, to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice, but the result of an event, an encounter, a meeting with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. This and nothing less is what it means to be a Christian. So we said the new evangelization is new in ardor. That's a kind of old-fashioned word. What in the world is ardor? Ardor is zeal, fervor, passion. Are you passionate about Jesus? Passionate about Jesus. Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Peggy Stanton, our weekly look at this Sunday's Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. These are the passages associated with the, the feast day of Epiphany, and um, we celebrate Epiphany uh, this Sunday. Uh, 
this before the break, Peggy, you were talking about um, again. Uh, yeah, I'll, should I repeat? I'll yeah, repeat go that ahead, sentence. Go ahead yeah. and repeat it. Yeah. Yeah. The magi, the magi. I guess it is. Is it magi or magi? Good, good question. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to I seem to find myself going back and forth between the two. Right. Um, the magi is coming to Jerusalem. This is from uh, a paragraph. Uh, let's see, five twenty-eight in the Catechism. Um, the Magi is coming to Jerusalem in order to pay homage to the King of the Jews shows that they seek in Israel, in the messianic light of the Star of David, the one who will be king of the nations. Their coming means that pagans can discover Jesus yeah. and worship him as Son of God and Savior of the world only, only yep. by turning toward the Jews and receiving from them the messianic promise as contained in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. The epiphany shows that the full number of the nations now takes its place in the family of the patriarchs and acquires, now this is, I don't know how to pronounce this, I'm gonna make a stab at it. <laughs> Israel, Israel Leticia Dignitas. Am I off base Sure, there? that sounds good. <laughs> The dignity, which means the dignity of Israel's birthright. Yeah, yeah. So uh, then, paragraph seven twenty. Well, let me just let me just yeah, add that's that, an know, interesting it, comment. It, it is, and uh, this is especially interesting to me because in the book of Daniel, uh, you've got the again. This is in the East. This yeah. tradition of having. Um, the kings had around them people who allegedly possessed mystical knowledge. Right. So they, you know, priests, astrologers, mm -hmm. soothsayers, mm -hmm. uh, sages. And during the time of Daniel, when he's again in captivity in Babylon, mm -hmm. in the east, uh, there were enchanters, sorcerers, uh, those who interpreted dreams and mm -hmm. signs, and they operated to uh, fight Daniel. So uh -huh. he, here we have these mm. magi from the east, mm -hmm. the same kind of people who were uh, in opposition to Daniel. Mm -hmm. Here we have them turning mm -hmm. towards Israel. They tried to destroy uh, Israel uh, when Daniel was in Babylon. Mm -hmm. Now they've turned from the destruction of Israel to the recognition of the Jewish Messiah. And I just think it, this is a beginning uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the beginning of a theme that goes throughout the Gospel, and that is that Israel's king is going to be welcomed by those who would least expect mm. it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Even Very relevant to today's situation, yeah. would you say? Yeah. Well, they're working against uh, the Jewish leader. The Jewish leaders mm. are working against Jesus in mm -hmm. the Gospel of Matthew, when in fact the pagan nations are recognizing in the Jewish, <laughs> in the yeah. Jewish Messiah. <laughs> they're turning towards Israel at the uh -huh. same time that the Jewish leadership is trying to destroy the Messiah. Isn't it? It's a, that's a that's a wonderful insight, um, Al. Because <laughs> you know it it uh, the mystery of of God and the irony, so much irony throughout salvation history. Yes. Don't you think? Oh, so much so. Yeah. Um, again, it's it's 
Go no, the story is is incredible. It's mm -hmm. filled with twists and turns mm -hmm. yeah. that make sense uh, mm -hmm. as you go through it. But in the in the prevision, you can't see no the logic of it. But Absolutely. On the other side, you can see it, and you can just say, "Wow, God is wonderful." Yeah. <laughs> He's a great storyteller. Yes. I mean, the drama with which he has invested yes. <laughs> all of this story, salvation history is 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 incredible. Paragraph 724 says, In Mary, the Holy Spirit manifests the Son of the Father, now become the Son of the Virgin. Mm -hmm. She is the burning bush of the definitive theophany. Wow. Filled with the Holy Spirit, she makes the word visible in the humility of his flesh. It is to the poor and the first representatives of the Gentiles that she makes him known. Yeah. yeah. Paragraph 438 says, Jesus' messianic consecration reveals his divine mission. For the name Christ implies he who, uh, now this is complicated, he who anointed, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. <laughs> How's that for let's, a tongue twister? Let's, the, let's try that again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that one again, but I'm going to give you the info, the explanation. The one who anointed is the Father. The one who was anointed is the Son. And he was anointed with the Spirit who is the anointed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now you parse that sentence out for me. <laughs> again, the, the, you've got the primacy of the Father, right? Yeah, I got um, that. And... <clears throat> it's that last sentence that I got. He was anointed with the Spirit who is the anointed. Yes, yeah. And that is, it, this is, again, one of those uh, wonderful situations where the person of the Spirit is also the means mm -hmm. of the anointing, uh, is the anointing itself. Um, mm -hmm. his, his be, he's being... Uh, think, of it, think of the Spirit here as the chrism oil. Of anointing, mm. Mm. and <clears throat> that's why that's the way I would look at it. Uh, but I again, the Father is eternally the Father, the Son is eternally the Son. That's the nature of the mm. relationship, right. Right. Father and Son, the eternal Sonship of Christ mm. is what we're talking about here, and uh, which is strangely denied by some uh, those in the Christian tradition, but not in the Catholic tradition. Um, you have the eternal Sonship. Mm -hmm. uh, of Christ, and this is again, you see this here because um, Jesus is anointed um, <clears throat> by the Father, mm -hmm. and He's anointed. You might say in with the Holy the Spirit, son, with the Spirit, yeah, yeah, with the Spirit, in the Spirit. The preposition yeah. is not clear to me. Well, I mean, I think it can go both ways, but yeah. Um, I, and who is the anointing? That's quite a. Uh, <laughs> A, a yeah. sentence. He was anointed with the Spirit, who is the anointing. The anointing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think I think I understand. Well, that. it's like on on, on uh, the the Holy Spirit manifesting as uh, tongues of fire mm -hmm. on Pentecost. That's right. the anointing. Mm -hmm. The Spirit is the anointing there. Okay. Yes, that's a that's a a good. Uh, juxtaposition there. <laughs> His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life 
And we talked about this earlier at the moment of his baptism by John when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. His works and words will further manifest him as the Holy One of God. Um, it says in paragraph 439 it says many Jews and even certain Gentiles who shared their hope recognized in Jesus the fundamental attributes of the messianic son of God David promised by God to Israel Jesus accepted his rightful title of Messiah though with some reserve because it was understood by some of his contemporaries in too human a sense as essentially political, yeah. which of course was the problem with the Jewish people, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, so that, that there was the fear. Jesus, Jesus didn't want to reinforce uh, a, a false idea of Messiah that was held mm -hmm. by the zealots and, and certain other factions within Messianic Judaism, or mm -hmm. factions within Second Temple Judaism. Well, they were hoping they would be freed from the oppression of the Romans. Yeah, so, legit, legitimate it, hope. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, and it says, of course, the shepherds represent the poor and ignorant, while the magi represent pagan believers and intellectuals. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, there's an elitism here. Yeah. The magi are definitely of the upper the upper class. They, they hobnob with power. Um, they are among the intellectual elite of the East. That's how they were regarded. Possessors of mystical knowledge, right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, um, I guess, what we're always referring to as the um, educational elite, mm -hmm. media elite. Uh, yep. There's hope for you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Magi represent that. Right, <laughs> right. right. Um, the the Didache Bible, uh, which you know does a lot of its reflections from uh, the Catechism, uh, talks about um, the chapter reveals. Uh, the Didache points out that the chapter two, verse one, reveals Christ's mission as the Davidic King, which we've talked about establishing the kingdom of heaven. Here, and we did talk about the fact that. Uh, Herod the Great uh, was not a Davidic king, and that was why he was so nervous, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. uh, about who who was this baby. And it must have been, I mean, just the very fact that he came as a baby, although it was predicted he would be born in Bethlehem. Yeah, the prophet Micah. So they did, they did, uh, they weren't, couldn't have been too surprised that uh, she he was a baby, since it was it was the what they were looking for. Yeah, it's, I don't know if they expected him to be revealed as such though, as a baby. Mm, I, mm. I, I, in their own minds, I, I imagine they would have thought that his being that he wouldn't reveal himself as the king until he was old enough to exercise kingly rule, right? Yeah, I th that's that makes a lot of sense. So that that may be why the the, the baby thing didn't really work for them. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Well, it says, and also uh, the Magi began their journey motivated by the revelation of God as manifested in nature. 
the star. Yeah. After guiding the Magi to the Christ child, the purpose of the star had ended. Henceforth, the light of Christ himself guides the people of God. Hmm. And then it's interesting uh, that uh, I don't know that everybody knows what those the significance of the gifts were, but the gold represents Christ's kingship, the frankincense, his divinity, and myrrh, his humanity, yeah. uh, especially his death. You know, in, the, in uh, the prophet Isaiah, in the 60th chapter, uh, you see a tradition of uh, gifts uh, being brought to the Davidic son. Mm. In particular, the gifts of gold and frankincense are mentioned mm. there in Isaiah chapter 60. Yeah. Oh, so, that's interesting. Oh. Uh, you, we, I don't, uh, we, we're just about out of time. I was going to ask you about this terrorist attack um, in uh, Germany. Right. Uh, and that. And the relationship it might have been to the prayer in Medjugorje. We, um, two uh, extraordinary events, but. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to Coor get... Coordinated at the same time. That's what makes yeah. it so notable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We, um, let's, uh, let's, let's give it a little time and we'll talk about it. Okay? Okay. All right. Peggy Stanton, again, helping us understand next Sunday's gospel reading. It's the visit of the Magi. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me, our EWTN family prayer. Today we pray for the caregivers of the sick. O most holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you. You have first loved us, and through your Son you have taught us the excellence of self-giving love. Give to those who are caregivers of a sick parent or child, brother or sister, the assistance of your holy angels. Lessen their burdens and give them great joy in practicing a work of mercy. And since charity is never forgotten by you, reveal to them their heavenly reward. Amen. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Let me remind you that you can follow up on our conversations by going to 
AveMariaRadio.net, and just go to the Cresta Guest Archives, where you'll find more information uh, on the Independent Institute and on California's math curriculum. Uh, you'll also find in the uh, uh, online bookstore there, you'll find commentaries and books about uh, Matthew's Gospel and about the coming of the Magi. Uh, we discuss, of course, with Peggy Stanton. Coming up next hour, though, we get a, a street-level history of abortion in America from 1652. Yep, that's when it begins. 1652 to 2022. I like to stress that this issue of abortion uh, didn't become uh, a controversial matter in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. It's been an issue of concern in American history even before the birth of the nation. It goes all the way back to the colonial times, colonial period, and Leah Savas is going to walk us through the cultural and legal history of abortion in America from 1652 to today. Stay with me. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta, and we've got a great hour ahead of us. History is a a great teacher, um, but you've got to spend time learning the history. And in this hour, we're going to do just that on the topic of abortion in America. It didn't begin with Roe v. Wade in 1973. The issue of abortion in America actually goes back before the birth of America. It goes back to the earliest colonial periods and the settlements of the uh, Puritans uh, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, in Connecticut. So that's what we're going to be doing with Leah Savas. She's a co-author with Dr. Marvin Olasky of a book called The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022. And again, this is her area of expertise. She writes, uh, reports regularly on abortion and pro-life news for World News Group. Uh, she's writing, writing weekly there. So she'll be joining us, and uh, I think we'll get a, a a fascinating story out of this. As I mentioned uh, earlier uh, in the program, uh, the 19th century uh, is an especially fruitful area for discussion because in the 19th century you have the development of professional scientific associations and scientific societies, and you also have the birth of what came to be called the American Medical Association. And it it is interesting how they dealt with the issue of abortion, why they opposed it, why they worked to stigmatize uh, abortionists, why they sought to change the law and to restrict abortion or even eliminate abortion in America. So, again, Leah Salvas, this hour, abortion in America, the complete history from the street-level history, let me stress that, 
from 1652 to 2022. But first, let's get to these headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Thursday, January 4th. It's the Feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. North Korea is supplying ballistic missiles to Russia as the country ramps up its war against Ukraine. Russia launched multiple North Korean ballistic missiles into Ukraine, including as part of its overnight aerial attack. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said Russia recently launched some of the missiles into Ukraine, adding that Russia is also seeking ballistic missiles and other military support from Iran. In response, the U.S. is rolling out additional sanctions against entities facilitating the arms transfers. Kirby also called on Congress to pass President Biden's request to provide funding to Ukraine. The State Department says it's not seeing acts of genocide in the Gaza Strip, but there are growing concerns about American hostages being held there. That, according to spokesperson Matthew Miller. We continue to work to try to bring uh, all of them home as we try to work to bring uh, other hostages who are not American citizens home. It's a top priority for everyone in this government, and we will not rest uh, until they are brought home. Miller making the comments Wednesday after South Africa launched genocide proceedings against Israel in the International Court of Justice. According to Miller, six hostages still remain unaccounted for in Gaza. ISIS is claiming responsibility for two blasts in Iran that killed almost 100 people and wounded nearly 300. Iran's first vice president telling reporters they can expect a, quote, very strong retaliation. And two former U.S. presidents, a member of the British royal family, and a magician, as well as the king of pop, are just a few of the roughly 150 referenced in unsealed court filings related to Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking conspiracy case. Names that are in the documents include Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, as well as Prince Andrew, David Copperfield, and the late Michael Jackson. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Last year, of course, uh, there was a big turn in the abortion story for America with the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And now, of course, with the beginning of this year, the Food and Drug Administration has now uh, permitted pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens uh, to allow, with prescription, uh, the sale of the uh, what are commonly called the abortion pill, which actually are two different pills. So chemical abortions, which New York Times claims uh, render about, are responsible for about 50% of abortions in America. So you can see, just in the last uh, year, we've seen incredible changes in the abortion story in America. But let me tell you, this story goes back way beyond Roe v. Wade. And my guest, uh, Leah Savas, has has told the story well in a, uh, a marvelous book of 400 almost 500 pages called The Story of Abortion in America a street level history Leah is uh, author of this book with Dr. Marvin Olasky. She is also a reporter uh, with World News Group, where she writes the weekly Vitals uh, Roundup. She lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with her husband, and you can follow her at Leah uh, Savas, uh, S-A-V-A-S. We'll have that uh, contact information available for you in the Cresta Guest Archives. Leah, it's good to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, let's 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 talk about this. Um, I think many people don't ha- have much of a storyline 
for abortion prior to the late 60s and then, of course, Roe v. Wade in the early 70s. Has abortion been a chronic issue of controversy in American history? The short answer to that is yes. Um, Starting in 1652, we have the first confirmed recorded abortion in the United States, and that was obviously before it was the United States. Yes, during the colonial period, (laughs) sure. mm -hmm, Yeah, but we even before that, we have what seem to be likely abortions. There's one in 16. 29, a likely abortion, but not confirmed just because of lost records. But the first confirmed one was in 1652, and it was when Captain William Mitchell, he impregnated his servant, Susan Warren, and he force-fed her an abortifacient Mm. on a poached egg. Um, So that's the first recorded abortion. He actually went on trial for murder because of what he did, because of the dead baby. Mm -hmm. But the court could not prove the abortion since it couldn't prove that Susan was pregnant in the first place. So um, he eventually did not, he didn't get convicted under under murder. But obviously it was not acceptable in the community's eyes if they testified against him. You know, he went on trial for this for murder. Yeah. So obviously early on it, it wasn't seen as the acceptable thing that it is today. Yeah. So going back to the beginning, abortion was considered um, aberrant behavior. I mean, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it's considered outside the mainstream. Is that right? Yeah, it was not. It was not accepted. It was uh, was seen as murder. Um, and this was even before. Obviously, today we have ultrasound technology and scientific advances that allow us to see the reality of unborn life. But this is 1652. This is right. centuries before ultrasound technology, and yet it was because of largely the understanding that people had of scripture and what. The Bible has to say about unborn life that resulted in communities um, not encouraging abortion, seeing it as murder. Also, early on, abortion wasn't as, you know, quote unquote, safe for the mother mm-hmm. as it is today. It's never been safe for the baby, obviously. But yeah. um, but even that danger to the mother is also another deterrent that we see. But it is largely the community pressures to to keep the unborn child, um, you know, positive pressures, like we're going to help you, we're going to hold the men accountable who, um, you know, get into these relationships with women and uh, and sometimes force themselves upon these women. Um, so, yeah, it was just a pressure to value unborn life, largely because of their understanding of Scripture valuing that unborn life. Yeah, that actually was my next question. Did they go to Scripture to justify their opposition uh, to abortion, or, or were there other uh, you know types of arguments for maybe natural law or whatever? So they, the common sense at the time regarding the science of unborn life was pretty um, rudimentary. They mm-hmm. didn't really understand exactly how how an unborn child developed. Right. But based on things that we know from. Um, 
for instance, Jane Sharp's Midwives book, um, she would describe unborn life and did see it as human life even early on. Mm-hmm. They, they did have kind of a strange concept of how unborn life developed, but even early on, they understood that it was human life. And yeah. that goes against what we hear from, say, the Roe v. Wade decision mm-hmm. where they argue in that in that opinion, the U.S. Supreme Court justices argued that in common law, abortion was acceptable up until quickening, right. which is when the mother can feel the baby inside of her around five months. But we have cases, specifically one, um, where a... Um, a man similar similar to the case I just described of Captain Mitchell, but um, Francis Brooke, he forced an abortion on one of his servants who he later married. Her name was Anne Bolton, and the unborn child died. And then a midwife saw the corpse of the unborn child and described it as a man child and said that it was about three months old. So... And, and Francis Brooke also went on trial for murder. This was this was not um, after quickening. This was before quickening. Wow. So we see from these cases that it wasn't. It's not true that um, they only saw it as wrong if it was um, after quickening. This was a pre-quickening case. So we can see that even early pregnancies they saw that as an unborn life. Yeah. Did did. Um is abortion mentioned in uh, New England law codes, uh, you know, that where you had largely uh, a Puritan background? Was abortion ever mentioned directly there? So there weren't laws specifically about abortion early on. They were just treated as murder cases. Yeah. But as, okay. as it went along... Um, and they had difficulty actually putting abortionists behind bars um, because of a lack of you know, it being able to confirm even that a woman was pregnant. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, they did introduce abortion laws partially uh, to at least give some sort of penalty. So even if they couldn't confirm a murder, any attempt to end an unborn life um, would have been something that they could have um convicted someone for so that was part of the reason for introducing these uh, abortion laws in later centuries but early on they were murder cases would that have been mid-19th century when those abortion laws started yeah in the 19th century yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know you mentioned jane sharp's uh manual for midwives roughly what when was that how early on is that yeah, so um, that would have also been in the in the sixteen hundreds, wow, and that okay. was that was one of those things that um, was just kind of commonly used by people at the time. It would have been one of the more uh, uh, common pieces of material that people would refer to. So, um, yeah, it it was it was one of those things that you would rely on as a midwife to understand what you're doing in helping a woman that's pregnant mm-hmm. and understanding unborn life was you know in in the the modern debate over abortion uh common common argument was uh, you're not dealing with a human person there or you're not dealing with the human being there you're dealing with just a quote blob of tissue uh 
in earlier days, was there a time when the unborn child was depersonalized like that, that you're just dealing with a blob of tissue? Uh, or was there always the sense that the primary victim of abortion was one of our kind, human? Yeah, that's it. That's a good question. Um, so I just talked about Jane Sharp. Uh, so she did have an understanding that she shared with Aristotle and Aquinas. Um, the common understanding at the time was that a baby developing developing in the womb would have started out more as a plant and then a beast yes. and then yes. a human. Um so they didn't understand what later doctors, even in the 1800s, would say, which was that um, life, human life begins at conception, right. that it's a distinct human individual. So as soon as the 1800s, we see more knowledge coming forth that's allowing these um, these doctors to assert things like this and assert the humanity of unborn life. But yeah, like what you're asking about is, is did they always understand that? And it doesn't seem like they understood it from the very beginning, but they at least knew it was early on yeah. that it was murder. So three three months yeah. in that one case I mentioned, they saw that as murder, and that's before quickening. So, yeah, it, it is kind of complicated uh, just with their limited scientific knowledge, but pretty soon we see doctors like Hugh Hodge talking about... Um, just life beginning at conception and and unborn children being individuals who who need the care uh, of a doctor as a second patient to the doctor. Um, tell tell us the story of the Hodge brothers, if you would. Yeah, so Hugh Hodge in the 1830s, he started a private practice in Philadelphia. Um, and he actually lectured on the abortion issue um, starting in 1839. And this is these in these lectures, we get to see how he is drawing attention to this humanity of the unborn child. Um, and he talks about the duty that physicians have to protect the rights of unborn children. So, um, yeah, he he definitely disagreed with fellow physicians who thought that um, abortion was okay, that it was um, recommended sometimes in some cases for women. In his mind, that was ending a human life. Yeah. Um, uh, if you Hold it there, Lee, if you would. We've got a break coming up right now. We'll come back on the other side and continue the conversation. Uh, my guest is Leah Savas. Uh, she, and along with Dr. Marvin Alasky, have given us the story of abortion in America, a street-level history, 1652 to 2022. It's, again, an extraordinary work, and we're going to continue the conversation. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion. 
of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm going to discuss what happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent. When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 11, verses 21 to 26. This is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Lazarus is one of his best friends. Just before this passage, we hear the news that Martha and Mary send word to Jesus that the one you love is sick. And the next line in the scripture is, now because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed where he was. His friend's in need. He can heal. They've seen him heal before. And yet somehow, because he loves him, he stays. And Lazarus dies. And then Jesus shows up three days later and is greeted by Martha and Mary, who confront him with the words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Rather applicable for many of us in our lives. We ask the Lord to do one thing because we're certain it is what we think is best. When in fact, he has something which far surpasses what we ask for. The challenge is in waiting for that to happen, we go through very trying times, which oftentimes makes us wonder, does he really care? With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta with me, Leah Savas, who is co-author of the story of abortion in America. Dr. Marvin Olasky. We've been looking over. Uh, we were talking earlier, just before the break, 
about Hugh Hodge, who becomes professor of, of obstetrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I'm, in, in the book, uh, there's a quote uh, where he, in fact, is emphasizing um, in his 1839 introductory lecture uh, that human existence commences from the moment of conception. So he's arguing for continuity between, you know, the pre-birth and post-birth human. Uh, and I, I think it, I'll just read a paragraph here that's contained in the, in the book. The child unborn absorbs nourishment from its parents, uh, from, from its parent through the medium of the uterus. After birth, it imbibes the materials for nutrition by means of, of the breasts. There is essentially no difference in its physiological properties or as to the independent character of its existence. And uh, again, this is showing awareness uh, of again, continuity between the child pre-birth and the child post-birth. Uh, it, it is fascinating to me that uh, his younger brother, Charles Hodge, became probably the, the greatest Reformed theologian of the 19th century, uh, who also understood uh, that the universe was a product of intelligent design. Um, when the debate about, uh, Leah, when does abortion, I'm trying to figure out what the status of abortion, clearly it's... Uh, Nothing. Nobody celebrates abortion in America uh, in the 19th century, although there are doctors who will perform abortions. Um, when does it become? Uh, when does it become illegal uh, for abortion? When are, when are there actual laws, say in New York City or other places, which criminalize abortion? Yeah. So pretty early on, actually, we see these cases, like I was talking about before, of um, of just people forcing women or pressuring yeah. women to get abortions or performing abortions on them, and then just an inability to actually um, convict them of murder because of a lack of evidence and the, the jury can't agree um, on a verdict. So in our earliest case of a um, specifically abortion law is from, is from out of Connecticut in the around 1820 so it's actually this it's it roots from this story of a of a preacher named Ami Rogers who had an affair with one of his um, one of the people that attends his church mm -hmm. so he he pressures her or he gives her an abortifacient um it's not effective and then there's a tool that they use to remove the baby um he eventually gets arrested and put on trial but since they didn't have clear evidence for murder they just found him guilty of causing an abortion by drugs and he, that gave him a two-year jail sentence and this verdict led to the first state law against abortion. They wanted um, wanted larger penalties for people who would perform abortions or pressure people into abortions than what they currently had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so we see that kind of starting to pop up in in eight, that's 1820. But even before that, we do have cases of... Uh, are you still there? Telling me okay. yeah. We oh, lost yes. you for a Can second. You hear me? Yeah. We hear you oh, fine okay. now. Mm -hmm.
Okay, good. So, yeah, so I was just going to say that a little earlier, we have cases of laws being passed that tell midwives that they cannot, um, they, they cannot facilitate or um, give advice for an abortion. So even before that, we, we see some of this pushback against abortion, trying to minimize it. Mm-hmm. And that's largely in reaction to Uh, just how communities are changing during this time. People are moving away from family. They're moving into cities. There's less of that uh, familial uh, kind of uh, support network there to encourage shotgun marriages if right. someone gets pregnant out of wedlock, um, to pressure fathers into taking responsibility for their children. Mm-hmm. Um even if that child is still in the womb. So, yeah, so as the communities are changing, we're seeing these laws come into play uh, and abortion becoming more uh, more common and these laws trying to minimize that. Uh, speaking of ch- the cities, uh, now you can help me out here because I'm recalling uh, my, uh, my memory, which may be quite faulty. But I was under the impression that uh, in New York City that there was a trade in abortion, but it wasn't called that. There were euphemisms were used to promise certain results uh, uh, to free a woman from pregnancy. I don't know exactly what the language was, and that um, th- there was uh, the New York Times actually had an investigative reporter who did an expose on uh, these doctors who were really abortionists, but they were uh, advertising uh, using euphemisms. Any, did you come up with anything in your book on that? Yeah, so uh, Madame Ristel is one of the primary characters in the opening sections of the book, and she was a prolific abortionist in New York City in the mid-1800s. Her real name was Anna Lohman, and she was um, she was an expert, I guess you could say, in abortive drugs. And they, uh, her husband actually worked for a newspaper, and they would run ads uh, advertising for these abortive drugs. But they would use, like you were saying, they would use euphemisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a lot of times it was language like, you know, a, uh, we have these drugs that a woman who is pregnant should not take, you know, almost saying, you know, <laughs> wink, wink, right, you know, right. <laughs> you don't want this if you're pregnant, but if you don't want to be pregnant, you want it. Yeah. Um, so they would use language like that. They would use language like bringing down the menses. Um, and actually, we're seeing some similar language pop up again today where uh, abortion groups will advertise quote-unquote missed period pills um if because the idea is that well if someone thinks abortion is wrong this will help them get past that stigma of abortion and help them see it as as something else and that's certainly what we were seeing early on so it's interesting seeing how history has come full circle in that way yeah when when did the the American Medical Association, or the precursor, whatever the precursor was for the American Medical Association, uh, did they come out against abortion early on? Yeah, yeah. Originally, um, there was pushback um, against abortion. They um, uh, they actually formed a committee on criminal abortion, and 
they just uh, there was opposition certainly among doctors early on to to quench abortion. They didn't see it as a good thing, uh, and that was largely because of their pro life understanding of the science. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some narratives that say that they just wanted to put midwives out of business. Yeah, but, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly we're seeing in a lot of their writings that they had this understanding that it was human life, um, that that as doctors, you should not be ending the life of one of your patients. Right. So, yeah, obviously that would change eventually. Today, uh, most mainstream physicians yeah. groups support abortion, but that was not our history. Yeah. Uh, the the first generation of feminists, uh, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, and her colleagues, and they had many disagreements among them. Were any of them supporters of abortion? Um, So from my understanding, most of these early feminists actually did not um, did not approve of abortion. It was not a part of their feminist stance. That wasn't until later waves of feminism that we would see more of the support for abortion as women's choice or women's health care. That was not an original feminist position. Right. Right. Yeah, I know some of them. It might have been Elizabeth Cady Stan, who actually described it as child murder. Um, but uh, a lot of people are sim- don't realize that, that uh, the attitude towards uh, the unborn child uh, in the uh, first wave of feminism in America, very different than what we see with the feminist movement that emerges from the late 60s and early 70s, where abortion becomes the sine qua non of modern feminism, according to Gloria Steinem. Uh, so it's amazing, uh, the changes that have occurred there. Uh, so Generally, abortion is regarded uh, as wrong. It's distasteful. Uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not for polite society. Um, and the early American Medical Association is against it. When do we begin to hear drumbeats for loosening uh, laws against abortion? When do we begin to hear people uh, in the name of uh, freedom uh, asking for uh, liberal, more liberal abortion laws? As I was describing earlier, there's this move out of more... Um, out of the country and into more uh, cities and just family, the family structure not being as common as people will move into cities to, um, to get a job, to make some money. Um, we have less accountability from, um, from families, from churches, uh, less of a, uh, accountability from, um, authorities in life. And as that's happening, um, there's also this simultaneous move towards abortions actually becoming safer for women. Mm. Um, They're, they're, they're not as dangerous, especially as, as the understanding of like germs and how to um, have antiseptic procedures. That was really important for 
ensuring that there was only one death in an abortion, um, which was obviously the death of the baby, but not the death of the mother. And we see these, what Marvin calls new school abortionists who are very skilled at what they're doing. They have, they have, uh, um, very, um, steady hands. They're able to successfully perform an abortion without harming the woman. And um, yeah, just as that goes along, we see more of a push to allow for abortion as it becomes more acceptable for the woman. Uh, can you stay with another segment for me? Yeah, for okay, sure. Very good. Well, we're going to continue conversation. It's the story of abortion in America, a street level history, 1652 to 2022. My guest, Leah Savas, is co-author with Marvin Olasky of this really marvelous volume. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. What is God's most amazing quality? Surely it must be his enormous mercy towards sinners. This mercy is revealed in the gospel through Jesus Christ. Jesus' very name means salvation from sin. The Eucharist is the sacrament of redemption, we learn from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In order to receive this mercy, however, we must know and acknowledge that we indeed have sinned and are in need of forgiveness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, St. John's Gospel reminds us. But if we confess our sins, God will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John Paul II asserted that conversion requires convincing of sin. As a physician must probe a wound before treating it, God, through his word and his spirit, casts a living light on sin. But along with the sting of conscience comes the salve of the certainty of redemption. So the spirit of truth is also the consoler. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchak. 
Did you know everything about Catholic family life is a prayer? Because of sacramental grace, when families do all the normal things we already do, but do them with the intention of sharing Christ's love with each other, we're praying. When you hug your kids, hold them an extra second and give them a hug from God, too. When you make a meal, ask the Blessed Mother to help you make it in the same spirit she served her son. When you discipline your kids, take a moment to pray together and ask God to help you learn to take even better care of each other. Inviting God's grace into everything we do is how normal, messy families become real domestic churches. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Leah Savas. She is the author of The Story of Abortion in America, co-author. It's a street-level history of 1625 to 2022. Uh, Leah, when did... What was the linkage between contraception and abortion? Um... Margaret Sanger was a big champion for contraception. Was she also a champion for abortion? Yeah, so actually Margaret Sanger did not approve of abortion. She didn't think of it was um, the best option. She That's why she pushed for um, contraception partially. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted to prevent the pregnancies of of often poor people, people with disabilities. Um, But no, she actually, surprisingly, even though she's the founder of Planned Parenthood, she was not a big advocate for abortion. Um, But it was uh, politicians um, linking birth control and abortion that often led to this, as we still sometimes see it today, kind of a linking of abortion and and contraception in the American mind. So, um, for instance, the Comstock law, it linked abortion and birth control in preventing the mailing of abortive drugs and preventing the mailing of contraceptives. So, um, yeah, so we do we do see that link show up although it wasn't necessarily in the mind of people like margaret sanger it mm-hmm. just kind of naturally flowed from that yeah um so is there do you know when the first organized pro abortion group started in american history Mm-hmm. So uh, Lawrence later was actually a, a big pusher for um, pro-abortion policies, yeah. and he um, he actually wrote a biography of Margaret Sanger. He he thought, I guess in some ways, it, he was she was a hero to him, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and he he yeah. So he wrote a book about her, and he also started writing magazine stories about abortion um and and that was in the late 1950s and then within a couple decades you start to see the rise of groups like um the NARAL um Mm -hmm. the 
um, and groups like that that are pushing to legalize abortion in different states. So, yeah, so we have we have this push. We have National Organization for Women that started in 1966. Um, and uh, that was that was run by Betty Friedan. Mm-hmm. And she she was kind of looped in by Lawrence later. And uh, originally abortion was not one of her, her topics, not one of the things that she pushed for, but she was just encouraged to get on this bus in a way um, and start pushing for these abortion laws. So yeah, it's around like the fifties and sixties and seventies, we start to see this push for legal abortion. And they're, and they're referring to a lot of incorrect statistics about, um, how many women die from abortions yeah. and how many illegal abortions result in just terrible outcomes. And they, they knew that those numbers were fudged, didn't they? Yeah, um, we do learn that from Bernard Nathanson. Yep. He used to be a, um abortionist and was actually, he, he partnered with Lawrence Later um, to, to push for the repeal of abortion bans. And he later became pro-life and uh he was he did that video i don't know if you probably heard the silent scream oh yeah um and talked about what's behind an abortion procedure and he did say you know we made up a lot of these statistics just to affect the public opinion yeah yeah in fact nathanson was on this program uh I think three times uh, before his death. Oh wow! Yeah, so it's oh, yeah, cool. so it, it was, it was it's. It, I, I mean, he was just very forthright about saying mm-hmm. that they're just those numbers were just pulled from the air, um, and yeah. so it's it's so before then. So it is this 1950s into the 60s. This Lawrence Later uh, movement, and then the development of NARAL. So that is is that's the first really serious organized effort to uh, legalize abortion. Is that right? It was. It, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. And it's. Yeah, a lot of it was spurred too by this story of Sherry Finkbein. She was a. Um, she was on the television sh- television show The Romper Room. Uh, she found out she was taking a drug while she was pregnant that was actually found to cause birth defects. And Mm -hmm. this was in the early 1960s. Um, She wanted to get an abortion. She went to this hospital's therapeutic abortion committee, which is basically a committee that would allow for abortions in certain cases that Mm -hmm. maybe could be seen as endangering the women, like maybe just her mental health. And originally she was approved to get an abortion for her mental health because you know, she, that was the excuse. She was just concerned that the baby would have defects. Yeah. Um, but then when this hit the press and the press found out, the hospital went back on that. Um, and a lot of the press coverage was very negative about how the hospital had reneged on her. And uh, people just, everyday people in America were polled on this abortion issue in light of the Sherry Finkbein story. And a lot of them just thought, oh, well, she should be able to get an abortion. So it was stories like that that did affect public opinion. It was the way reporters would cover the abortion issue that affected what people thought. Eventually, Sherry Finkbein was able to get an abortion. She had to go overseas to get it, but Mm. she was able to get it. And yeah, it it was actually that story that largely... Um, opened up the door for Lawrence later to 
be able to get his articles and his features about abortion published. Wow. That's amazing uh, to, to watch the conscience of a nation get shaped by these activists and, and, the, uh, the, and oftentimes the dishonest means by which they do it. Um, when any, what do you anticipate for the future? Uh, we've entered a new era now with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We also now have the chemical abortions easily accessible at places like CVS and Walgreens. What, what do you have any? I realize you wrote a history here. I'm not asking you to be a prophet, but you know a lot <laughs> of what's happened in the past. You have any projection for the future you want to share with us? Well, currently, some of the big battles we're seeing um, are on the state level. As we all knew, once Roe v. Wade was overturned, we knew it would go to the states. So we see state state Supreme Courts dealing with basically state versions of Roe v. Wade. States like South Carolina now have um, decisions that have declared a state right to abortion. Um, So state Supreme Court decisions that say that. So I think fighting against that is going to be one big thing. We'll see some more fights in the state courts. Um, and we'll also be seeing what you were referring to, just the spread of the abortion pill. Even if abortion is illegal in a certain state, there are websites that advise women on how to access abortion pills. For instance, they can set up mail forwarding, have a, a, bill, a pill sent to a state where abortion is illegal, but then forwarded to their current address. They can order abortion pills from overseas. So it is, it's going to be a fight against all these innovative ways that the abortion industry is trying to get abortion pills into women's hands. Um, and that's already in 2020, yeah. we know from the statistics that was more than 50% of the abortions right. were abortion pill abortions. So I think that's just going to keep going up. But we also have to be paying attention to what people are being taught. Like, what are these women being taught? Are they being taught that it is abortion is okay, that unborn life is not human life, that you get to decide whether or not a child inside of you dies? Um, so it will largely be a question of um, of worldview and what the culture is telling these women and how the church is responding yeah. to that. Yeah. So. Well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Marvin's an old friend of mine, and uh, I was delighted oh, to see that the two of you worked on this. And um, give my best to him, and thank you okay. for all your work on this. Uh, it's great to have it, and it's uh, again well illustrated with stories and uh, facts. So thank you so much, Leah. Thanks for having me on, Al. Leah Savas uh, is the author, co-author of The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022. History, as you know, if you're listening to this program for very long, you know I do take a lot of interest in history. Uh, I can't see the future very clearly, so at least I can try to get a hold of what's going on in the past. And once upon a time, the New York Times was actually a great Christian newspaper. Hard to believe, but yes. It was started in 1851 by a Protestant layman, Henry Jarvis Raymond, and his vision for newspapering was very different from that of Horace Greeley and other print pioneers. He simply wanted to tell the truth. He wanted to avoid sensationalism and abusive language, and yet he had a strong reforming impulse. He also knew he had to make a buck. Uh, that We won't deal with that right now. His philosophy... Um, 
was, quote, we sh- listen to this, we shall be conservative in all cases where we think conservatism essential to the public good. And we shall be radical in everything which may seem to us to require radical treatment and radical reform. We do not believe that everything in society is either exactly right or exactly wrong. What is good we desire to preserve and improve, and what is evil to exterminate or reform. You know, abortion, uh, during those years of the early days in the New York Times, abortion was officially illegal, but it was rampant, as Leah was saying, in New York City from the 1840s through the 1860s. And the New York Times had many editorials that were complaining about the perpetration of infant murder. It said, um, infant murder is rank and smells to heaven. But little was being done about it until the Times actually sent one of its reporters, Augustus St. Clair, great name, Augustus St. Clair, to carry on an undercover investigation of the uh, abortion businesses of Manhattan. And so for several weeks, St. Clair and a lady friend visited the most advertised abortionists in New York. And again, they had euphemistic ways of advertising their services. And so St. Clair and this lady friend posed as a couple in need of professional services. And he put together uh, an outstanding article. It was an August 23rd, 1871 story that headlined, The Evil of the Age. No timidity, no moral detachment, no masquerading as neutral. The article was fair, it was accurate, but it wasn't passive in the face of this extraordinary evil. Uh you know, there was another prominent newspaper of the period called the Northwestern Christian Advocate. And uh, again, this newspaper uh, said that they should let theology, law, medicine, politics, literature, art, science, commerce, trade, architecture, all questions concerning the welfare of a people be freely discussed and treated for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. You know, uh, it's amazing. Uh, early 19th century uh, papers. Uh, about three-fourths of them were, quote, religious. Um, And of all the issues that the press was dealing with, roughly three-quarters of them were theological, ethical, or devotional. It's a very different age today. But I do think it's, it's good to know that history gives us many heroes as well as our saints to look to for how to deal with the good, the true, and the beautiful in a society and culture which is headed downward. And we certainly appear to be in that position today. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. That idea of suffering is one of the reasons many people either turn away from God or they ignore faith altogether because they cannot comprehend or wrap their heads around suffering and all the suffering in the world. This is an issue for you, and it's, it's an issue for all of us from time to time when we go through rough situations, to say, Lord, what do you want me to learn about suffering? Ask the Lord to help you understand the meaning of suffering. God doesn't waste his time with anything. Whatever you go through, he will use if you allow him to use it. And you look at the greatest evil, right? The killing of God, Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, And what came out of that? Our salvation. 
Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays, counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent. Well, thank you so much. And uh, before I go, I want to give some congratulations here uh, to another member of the EWTN radio family, Totus Tuis Catholic Radio in Gainesville, Georgia. They're celebrating eight years with us now. So congratulations to Mark Peffer, Carol Bush, and everyone at WMKP from all your friends here at EWTN. Let me remind you also that you can follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. There you'll have, in the Crest of Guest archives, you'll have follow-up information from the first hour's topics and also from this topic, Abortion in America, The Complete History. Also, the book, Abortion in America, The Complete History, The Story of Abortion, A Street-Level History, 1652 to 2022. That's available in the... uh, um, online bookstore. So take advantage of it, and Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow for another edition of Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio, and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.